or my least favorite actually of his was uh, Life is About Making Choices, which as I got older and responsibility stacked up, uh, that made more sense and I hated it all the more. <laughs> and I heard, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, and I'm still not entirely sure what that means, something about opportunity, I hear. Uh, but my mom's favorite, my mom's favorite, she would always ask rhetorically, yeah, well if everyone was jumping off of a cliff, would you do it? And I uh, had some friends who quite literally were into cliff jumping. And so my sarcastic response was always like, well, yeah, duh. Um, which wasn't, didn't always go over so well. But it was when those friends in high school and as they were getting ready for college, those friends of mine, the adventurous cliff jumpers, started dabbling in hard drugs that uh, it came, I came to the realization like, whoa, my mom and dad were right. Uh, life is about making choices. And I need to decide now if this is a cliff that I'm willing to jump off of. I think just because we're Christians, it doesn't mean that it gets any easier for us to follow, uh, to not follow the crowd. In fact, the crowd is often more appealing than the life to which Jesus calls us. And so uh, Luke, of the Gospel of Luke, Luke, takes issues with crowds. And if you'll indulge me just a little bit, I'd like to kind of trace briefly how crowds are portrayed throughout Luke's Gospel. So they first appear on the scene in Luke 3, verse 7. Uh, John the Baptist is addressing a crowd. Uh, you might, if you're reading through Luke's Gospel, it might, you might also see crowd or multitude of people or many people, but it's all kind of the same idea. But Luke is, uh, John the Baptist is addressing a crowd and he calls them a brood of vipers. Not off to a great start so far. In Luke 4, uh, the very next chapter, Jesus is on the scene and the crowds are gathered around him. Jesus has been healing. And he's ready to go, and the crowd tries to prevent Jesus from leaving. They want to hold on to him, presumably because of his popularity. We get a clearer picture of the same sort of thing in Luke 5, the next chapter. The crowds are pressing in on Jesus, the text reads. They want him to remain because Jesus has been healing people, but Jesus insists on departing from them. And there's this tension. This is where the tension between Jesus and the crowd begins to rise. There's tension because they want him to stay and keep performing miracles, but Jesus really wants to go, and he finally does depart from them, and it says that he withdraws to a deserted place to pray, to be away from the crowd, to be in solitude. Right after that scene, Jesus is back in a group, of, in a crowd. He's in a hut, and uh, the text reads that, that, uh, that the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting by, had, were sitting by, they had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So we get the idea that Jesus' reputation was spreading. And so they come to see what he's doing. He's in the middle of this room, and the text tells us Jesus then, uh, just then, some men came, carrying a man on a bed. He was paralyzed. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down on his bed through the roof. In this scene, the crowd has literally formed a barrier between this paralyzed man and the friends of who are trying to get him at the feet of Jesus and Jesus himself. In chapter 6, just after that, Luke tells us that the crowds are there specifically at the feet of Jesus because they want healing. And it's in this section that Luke, for the first time, refers to two groups of people. He refers both to a great number of disciples and also the crowd. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Luke distinguishes between the two, and this distinction becomes only more pronounced as the gospel goes on. 
In fact, in Luke 9, about three chapters later, Jesus is walking with his disciples and he asks them, who do people say I am? That is, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answer, they said this, they say you're a healer, a wonder worker. And then Jesus turns on them and says, but who do you say that I am? The implication of this question seems to imply that a true disciple has a little bit more of an intimate relationship with Jesus. But what makes that relationship truly intimate? Is it some sort of secret knowledge? Is it the ability to perform miracles? Always having the right answer? Man, I wish. That'd be great. Perhaps it's hope. Hope in the work that Jesus' life and ministry is doing. Perhaps it's hope that there's more to these healings and miracles than what meets the eye. Things start to ramp up in Luke chapter 11 between the crowds. The crowds are amazed because of Jesus' teachings and miracles. However, some begin to accuse Jesus of being in league with Bezabel, Bilzebul, and they start to demand a sign. Now before this, aside from the fact that there's a distinction between the crowds and the disciples, for the most part, these crowds have just been really intrigued by Jesus' reputation as a healer. They're excited. But this is the first time that the crowds, we learn, can actually be a little fickle. That they can actually be not quite so supportive of Jesus. Maybe they're too focused on the miracles themselves. Maybe they can't yet see the bigger picture. Either way, this seems to be disturbing to Jesus because at the end of that chapter, Luke 11, as the crowds are continuing to increase, Jesus looks to his disciples and he says, this is a wicked generation where they demand a sign. And all this leads to this culminating chapter in Luke 12. 12.1 reads that uh, as the crowds numbered in the thousands, people were starting to trample one another. I'm thinking about like Black Friday, you know, when you've got your eyes set on that item and it's like 3.30 in the morning, the doors are opening in 30 minutes, you've been there for a couple hours, and as soon as the doors open, it's like no holds bar, like, you know, I'm getting that TV or whatever. Um, but Jesus turns away from the crowd in this scene. They're, they're trampling one another. They're trying to get to him. He turns away from them, and he speaks directly to his disciples. And he has this conversation. And then a few verses later, someone in the crowd asks Jesus a question. And he responds to that question rather ambiguously with a parable. Parables are always open to interpretation and a little ambiguous. But that ambiguity becomes even more apparent when Peter has to stop him and say, Peter, his disciple, has to stop him and say, wait a second, Jesus. Who is this parable for? Us, the disciples, or everyone else is how it reads. And Jesus' response, again, is even more ambiguous. But at the end of all of this chapter, he once again calls the crowds a bunch of hypocrites. And I think the ambiguity of chapter 12, between the disciples and the crowds, between who Jesus is speaking to, is he teaching the disciples, or is he teaching everyone else, this chapter encourages us to pause, to ask the question, will we, the reader, fall in line with the crowd or with the disciples? Is this story, this narrative, this gospel, these healings, these teachings, these miracles, is this for everyone else, or is this for us? So that's only Luke 12, and Luke has like 24 chapters? I should probably know this, 24, 25 chapters. And so this goes on for the rest of the gospel. I'm going to skip forward to the very end. Luke 23, 18 reads, we, we read here 
um, how powerful the cause can actually be. It reads, the chief priests, Jewish leaders, and all the people, that is the crowd, joined together in condemning Jesus. The crowds turned against him, and they condemned him to his death. Luke is trying to tell us something about crowds. Luke is trying to tell us something about crowds. Sometimes crowds can be a source of good and beautiful change and transformation in this world. Think of like the Million Man March, October 1995. Millions of people marched on Washington. But crowds can be evil. Think about the Charlottesville marches that happened just months ago. Crowds can incite passion and togetherness. They can nurture diversity in its fullest and most beautiful sense. I think about, this was my first experience with the uh, Chicago Marathon a few weeks ago. Like, what a beautiful, uh, beautiful crowd. But they can also drive a wedge between those who have gathered together for a cause and those who don't align themselves with that cause. I think about those pictures you've seen of Black Lives Matters protesters protesting the streets, and right next to them are people picketing with signs that say all lives matter. Crowds can engender hive mind, where we all begin to think alike and place our fears, our anxiety, our worries, our priorities, and sometimes, yes, even our hope, and whatever it is that the crowd deems to be the most important at that moment. And so crowds always beg the question of us as individuals, as Christians, if your friends are jumping off a cliff, would you do it too? So in our passage today that, uh, that was just, I didn't read that, I've already forgotten. Get away back there. In our, uh, our passage today, a crowd forms. And it invites us, Luke invites us into this story, into this narrative, this theme of crowds, and he's asking us to decide, is this cliff a cliff made for jumping off of? Are you going to be a part of the crowd showing up for Jesus' healings and miracles or not? In today's passage, a blind man is sitting by the roadside begging. He's going about life as per usual. And suddenly, he hears this crowd go by, and I, I admit, I can't even begin to imagine how frightening it must be to not be able to see what is causing a ruckus around you. I hear like the littlest noise on the bus, and I'm like, what was that? Like my, oh my God, I'm all, yeah. Um, I can't even imagine what this man must have felt, but he appears to be pretty used to it. And so he calls out to anyone who is willing to answer him. What's going on? What is everyone looking at? Someone in the crowd. Someone. We don't know who this person is. They're not named, so that, that, tells us that tells us that they are just a part of the crowd. But someone is gracious enough to speak to this man. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He says, kind of passively barking back. His focus is really on the ruckus. That he calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, tells us that this person is really just intrigued by Jesus' reputation. This was a nobody from the slums of Nazareth who had been causing an uproar, working miracles, ticking off Jewish leaders, ticking off the Roman Empire, and now he's passing through town. I wonder what sort of trouble he's going to be causing today. 
Excitedly, he passively barks at this blind beggar. But likely, this person, this unnamed person in the crowd, doesn't know how good of news it is that Jesus has shown up today. But the blind man does. And so he shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The people in the crowd hear the blind man and they turn on him. They order him to stay in his lane and to be silent. Too busy silencing him, however, they don't catch his words fully. For the man speaks and without having seen him, he has identified Jesus as the fulfillment of that long-awaited, that long-hoped-for Messiah, the one who would come and who would restore humanity, the one that the psalmist sang of when they sang, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created all mortals who can live. Surely no one can live and never see death. Who can escape the powers of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Well, people, here it is. He's passing by. This man is not just Jesus of Nazareth. This man is the son of David, the one that God promised would come. He would heal the sick. He would feed the hungry. He would clothe the naked. He would give sight to the blind. And he would set at liberty those who were held captive. He would love those that the crowd deemed unlovable. And he would bring unto himself any who were simply bold enough to ask. And yet the crowd stand there, stands there as a barrier, ordering this man to be silent. But the man is bold in his hope. He is bold in his asking, and so he doesn't back down. He has waited for this day to come. He has hoped and prayed that this day would come, and now it's here, and it can't be squandered. So he steps out boldly on a limb, and he shouts even more loudly, Son of David! Have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him. This tells us something. People, this tells us something about the nature of God. When the crowds are at their loudest and our voice seems the most overpowered, God still hears. Amen? Amen. In what ways do you feel silenced by the crowds? Maybe you've reached out to someone about feeling lonely and anxious. The future seems uncertain and unstable, and they didn't hear you. But Jesus hears the man. You've been struggling with some form of an addiction, and you've reached out and tried telling people, but they shrug it off. It's too much for them to handle. But Jesus hears that man. Maybe you've been victim to some form of abuse at home, in the workplace, by someone you trusted, and when you reached out to tell others, they told you, no, you must have gotten the story wrong, but Jesus hears the man. 
and invites us to hear those who are crying out, Lord, Son of God, Son of David, have mercy on me. So the irony here is that while the crowd had ordered the blind beggar to be silent, Jesus now turns and orders the crowd to bring this blind beggar to him. It's almost as if Jesus is inviting the crowd into the process of healing this person. And so they bring him to Jesus. And in contrast to the man who only passively barked back, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, come on. Jesus looks this man in the face, directly at the blind beggar, and he asks the question, what can I do you for? What can I do you for? That's how I hear Jesus. <laughs> and then comes the ask, Lord, let me see again. The boldness of this question strikes me every single time. The man has called Jesus by his true identity, the son of David, sent by God to reveal God's faithfulness to God's own promise to humanity. And yet he, like those in the crowd, just wants a miracle? Oh, come on. But it's more than that. Did you catch what he said? Let me see Again, again, for this man has seen God before and has lost that sight. Perhaps we have much more in common with him after all. How often have we experienced God's presence in our past, clung to that moment, but feel a little stale in that relationship now? How often do we give way to that staleness and believe the lie that it's inappropriate to reach out and to ask God to do something amazing in our lives? How often do we fall into the crowd and become convinced that boldness in our hopes for abundant life, for salvation, for grace, for mercy, and for sight is too big for God to handle? How often do we encounter Jesus of Nazareth, the miracle worker, and yet fail to recognize also that true identity, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God, the one who defeated death? How often do we encounter Jesus and when asked, what can I do you for? We don't know what we hope for. And therefore, our asking is weak. Lord, let me see again. Can you feel it? The crowd is silent, waiting to see what happens next. And Jesus breaks the silence, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And immediately the man regains his sight, his act of hoping and boldness for something no one else thought possible, and being bold in his asking literally transformed him. And we read that he glorified and praised God. In a like manner, the transformation of this man, the boldness of his question, transformed the heart of some of those in the crowd. I'm sure there were some that were still fickle and some who still thought Jesus was just in league with Bezable, but the, some in the crowd were also transformed. When they saw what happened, they too began to glorify God. The irony is that in praising God, they still failed to recognize what God was doing that day through Jesus. So I kind of end with this. Hebrews 11.1 reads like this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for 
and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And yet Jesus tells this man, your faith has saved you. In other words, the assurance of that which you hoped for has come. God has literally walked into your midst, literally walked amongst you today. You were blind, and now you see. And so I ask the question, what separates this man from the crowd? What separates the disciple of Jesus from the multitude of people, among other things? Among many things, it's hope. Hope in what God has done through Jesus Christ and what God continues to do in the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of the church. But we have to have the eyes to see it. We have to have the faith and the strength to listen for it, and that's where we come in, UBC. Every day, every Sunday, we stand up and we read that one of our core values is to be bold. And we say that that boldness is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means it's rooted in the belief of Jesus' ministry and in the power of those healings and those miracles. It's hope and belief in the resurrection of Jesus. It's hope and belief that God is fulfilling God's promises. And I feel like we're doing a pretty good job of living into that hope. I can, I can almost promise you that no other church in the nation today is going to be hosting caucuses as they strive to be an anti-racist church. Like, in this nation, I, I can just 100% almost sure of it. Um, and like that says something about our boldness. But the temptation remains. The crowds beckon us. Cliff jumping, if you haven't done it, is really, really exciting, and it's adventurous. And so the temptation is really strong. But I promise you this, people. When Christ walks into your midst, and you experience that adventure, oh man, you're going to be changed forever. May it be so.